The only thing that we do park companies on is your background in the United States Air Force and the United States Army because I come from a diehard Navy family. Sorry. Uh-huh. Well, my brother was in the Navy, so I'm not opposed to Navy. Okay. So you at least acknowledge the Navy has its role. Absolutely. Absolutely. Welcome to Trust Hacker, the podcast for elder and special needs law attorneys hacking their way out of the trust and tax jungle and seeking the sunny uplands of trust nirvana. And now, here's your guide, Bob Mason. Welcome to Trust Hacker, where we explore the tricks and traps used by the country's best elder and special needs law attorneys when tackling complex trust, tax, or other practice issues. Trust hacking is the term I use to describe any shortcut, skill, or insight that will help you crush it in your practice. In other words, a trust hack is anything that solves a trust or tax or other practice problem in an inspirational or ingenious way. My guest today is very likely one of the nation's foremost experts on VA Special Monthly Pension, a.k.a. aid in attendance. She has a fascinating story beginning as an hourly worker in a nursing home, a carpenter, among other things, in the Air Force during Operation Desert Storm, and a JAG officer in the Army Reserves. She started and runs a successful law firm in Decatur, Georgia, that's the eastern Atlanta metro area, is a co-founder of Lawyers with Purpose, and is always traveling and speaking. Anela Fellow, a certified elder law attorney, the publisher of numerous books and pamphlets on VA benefits, and the DeKalb County, Georgia Veteran of the Year for 2013. You guessed it, today we hack Victoria Collier. Victoria, welcome to the Trust Hacker. Good morning, Bob. Thanks. How are things down in Decatur? They are great. The sun's shining, and I am looking forward to spring and summer. And it's Friday, at least when (laughs) when we're doing this. So, good enough. I've known you for a number of years, and in talking to you, we've crossed paths, or at least been down the same path, in a number of different ways. Let's see. I grew up in Nebraska. I went to Nebraska. And you went to law school in Nebraska. I uh, lived in Houston during my high school years. And that's where I grew up and was raised. And you grew up, and I, I was out in the Spring Branch area. And after law school, I ended up in Atlanta. And that's where I ended up. How cool is that? <laughs> I know. And I'm sure if we dug deeper, we'd find even more. I'm sure. Uh, the only thing that we do park companies on is your background in the United States Air Force and the United States Army, because I come from a diehard Navy family. Sorry. Uh-huh. Well, my brother was in the Navy, so I'm not opposed to Navy. Okay. So you at least acknowledge the Navy has its role. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and my uncle was a career naval officer and spent, I don't know how many years in, 30 plus years. But you'd get him talking about the Marines in the same way. And, and he would say, no, they have their function. We need some of the guard the nukes. <laughs> anyway. Well, without any of them. Well, what's that? I said we couldn't do without any of the Marines. That's right. They're all of a holistic team. Mm-hmm. As a founder of Lawyers with Purpose, I've got to ask this question in a cutesy sort of way. You became a lawyer on purpose. 
How'd you Thank get you. How'd you get from the Air Force to the University of Nebraska Law School? Well, you know, it's interesting because I don't know that I can say I became a lawyer on purpose. Um, I um, went into when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be a doctor, and I took a lot of uh, health classes, advanced health classes, and watched surgeries and things like that, which were really intriguing to me. But I moved down to my parents' house when I was 17 and still in high school, and I had to drop all of my honors classes and take basic classes <laughs> so that I could just graduate on time uh, because I was then working full-time to support myself. Um, and... When I got out of the service, I worked about, I mean, sorry, when I got out of high school, I worked about a year and a half at uh, go-nowhere jobs with the exception of one, which was uh, at a nursing home uh, as a nurse's aide. And I would classify that as a go-nowhere job, but it is the platform that has led me where I am now. Um, But it wasn't until I was in the military. I was a carpenter and a mason. And I basically, the first two years, learned a lot of good stuff. Uh, And I was in Germany overseas. Um, But when I came stateside, I was basically just a a handyman, um, changing out door panic hardware and uh, locks and window closures and things like that. And I thought, this is not (laughs) how I'm going to spend the rest of my military career. So I actually tried to get out, and a friend of mine, who was a paralegal, said, just cross-train, as if it's so easy. (laughs) So I did everything I needed to do to cross-train and became a paralegal. Um, So it was really um, on a whim with someone trying to keep me in the military. And um, the one thing I can say of every job I've ever had, whether it was a go-nowhere job or otherwise, um, I've always tried to uh, do the best I can and become the position above me. And that's what led me to law school is when I got out of private, out of the military, and I worked as a private paralegal for private firms, um, I learned that I was doing everything other than going into court and making the big bucks, um, as we all assume as paralegals. And um, so at some point, I thought, why am I doing this? I should go to law school. And I had never been encouraged to do that before until I um, met who became my, my future, who became my spouse. And um, I was encouraged to go to law school, uh, and so I did. So so why Nebraska? Had you done something at Offutt when you were in the Air Force? or No, actually I hadn't. Um, Nebraska, the reason Nebraska was that my undergraduate degree was in psychology, and Nebraska had the very first and leading dual program between PhD in psychology and law. And um, I and the person who founded that dual degree, Professor Penrod, was still there. And I thought, well, I would really like to do that because I really like the psychology um, aspect. Uh, and so I went up and interviewed and all that. I did, I did then learn that that program took seven to nine years. And I was a late beginner. Um, so I ultimately chose law only. But that's what got me to Nebraska. Okay. You don't really miss it, do you? Not at all. (laughs) I miss some of the people, just like the military. I miss some of the people. Um, But I don't necessarily miss Nebraska. (laughs) Yeah. Although I will say that I did go back a couple years ago because I was the um, alumni of the year uh, for the law school. 
um, and which is a pr- quite prestigious thing. And I did, you know, feel a little nostalgia when I went back, but. Um, but here I am, back in Georgia, and not missing it at all. <laughs> I might add, as an aside, you know, both both of us are SELAs. And the other day I was looking for something completely unrelated on Nayla's website. I forget what it was. Irrelevant. And I noticed something. I wish I could remember the guy's name. Nebraska has a SELA. <laughs> For the longest period of time, there was just nothing out there. And speaking of the weather, I would joke around. The joke with the family was I'd check the weather in Omaha and see that it was, you know, minus 5 or minus 10 and (laughs) with a wind chill of minus 20. And I would say something like, hey, I could go back and open up an elder law practice in Omaha and tap into my old contacts. And both my son and my wife would go, we're going to miss you. (laughs) Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've got an incredibly strong entrepreneurial bent. I've seen it at work over the years. Everything from you out speaking and not just speaking, producing and putting on CLEs and, and um, what you're doing with lawyers with purpose and, and so things that go beyond simply practicing law. So where'd that come from? You know, it's interesting. When I started my law practice, I did not know technically what the word entrepreneur meant. I certainly can't even still spell it. Um, But uh, about two years into my practice, I read don't uh, I read um, Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad Poor Dad and learned that while a law practice is a wonderful um, business. It is, in fact, a business and not just a job, and that there's other ways to create income for yourself as well. And it got me really interested in um, entrepreneurship and actually, you know, running a business to help people and not just help people. And there are two very different things with regard to that. And so um, it's a shift in your mindset. And so I would have to say that, you know, I started my practice in 2002. In 2004, I stopped just coming to the office every day to see, you know, who I could help and how. It was really a shift in how can I let people know that I'm here so that I can help them? Uh, Because we can't do any help unless people know that you're out there. And that's part of being an entrepreneur is putting yourself out there. I heard somewhere, and maybe you'll recall, or maybe you've never heard it before, that if you have a skill or a talent or a product that would truly help people, you have almost a moral obligation to get out there and make sure they know about it. I agree wholeheartedly. And the example I heard was essentially if there is a person on the street and their arm has been severed and they're bleeding out and a physician walks by, is it not incumbent upon that physician to do what they can to help this person? And in our practice, elder law attorneys and estate planning attorneys, people are essentially bleeding out all the time and they don't know it necessarily, and so it's incumbent upon us to let them know that we are available when they are ready. Um, And yes, I see that it's a duty, not an option. (laughs) So when it comes to marketing, though, uh, many of our uh, brothers and sisters of the bar 
are very hesitant to do things that they consider marketing. And not everyone is as outgoing as Victoria Collier. What advice could you give those type of folks? Well, first, I would say that I started off as a paralegal in one of those firms that it was, as you would hear, referral-based only, um, which means that word to word based on the relationships you had built. And I wholeheartedly believe that that is a strong component of what all of us should be doing is building relationships. But I then, and in and, and, and traditional, what we call, not traditional, but you know, the marketing of today, which, uh, you know, putting ads in papers maybe and getting out and speaking at events and things like that, um, where I heard uh, something was in law school and it was my career's um, the career services dean, she gave us a story about this lawyer who put an ad in the Thrifty Nickel or, you know, those little newspapers mm-hmm. that you find everywhere for free. And he was, I'm not even sure what kind of a lawyer he was, um, other than a successful one. And she said, you know, <laughs> all the other lawyers, you know, badger him for doing things like that. And he had a smile on his face every day he walks to the bank and makes a deposit because of the response he gets from his you know, three-sentence ad in the Thrifty Nickel. And she said, you know, you can't be worried about what other people think about you if you are planning for your family and your goals and keep what's important to you in mind. And so as long as you are ethical and working within the bar rules, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about you. And in fact, if you're doing what everybody else is doing, then you're only going to be average. And I don't know when I decided I wanted to stop being average, if it was before or after I heard that. But that definitely gave me the motivation to do what I know is necessary for me and my family. The Trust Hacker is brought to you by TrustChimp an educational resource for attorneys attempting to hack their way out of the confusing jungles of public benefits and tax law and to reach the sunny uplands of Trust Nirvana. TrustChimp offers intensive three-day public benefits tax and trust training sessions described by attendees as intense and one of the best CLEs ever. All states that have reviewed the Trust Summit materials have approved them for 14 CLE hours. Find out more at trustchimp.com forward slash summits. With everything else that you've got going on, how much time do you get to spend actually practicing law? Oh, gosh. You know, it's a full-time job for me, um, practicing law um, and managing my law firm. And so I actually do travel a lot, but I am, when I'm not traveling, I am in my office from 8.30 until 5.30 every day. Um, And I am here, I am the only lawyer in my practice. And we, which means that I have to meet all the clients that come in and my firm has aggressive goals uh, to help people and to, you know, finance the overhead that we have. I've got eight employees. Um, And so, I practice law a lot. <laughs> I just, you know, the, the difference I think between me and, and many others, because I do run other businesses as well, or at least I uh, help in running other businesses, is that I am extremely focused on what I do at the office when I'm at the office. I am extremely focused on the other businesses when I am there. And for my family, 
I, it's all quality time, not quantity time, meaning that I don't just sit in front of the TV for three hours with my family. Is when we are together, we are engaged with each other. Um, and I don't watch any TV. And I don't, you know, listen to any of the news. And I don't, you know, when I'm traveling here and there, I am working on the plane and in the airport and in the hotel. I'm not, um, you know, spending time doing things that don't move me forward in one of those areas, business or family. I've got a title for your next book. What's Zen and the Practice of Law. <laughs> what is that? I didn't hear the question. Zen and the Practice Zen. of Law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, I love it. I just love it. And that is a, another thing that, you know, for our listeners and, you know, anybody who's starting out is don't do it if you don't love it. And, you know, I had a associate who was an excellent associate. He became partner and I love him so much. I still do. Um, but after a year, he said, I can't be partner anymore because this isn't what I love. Um, and he went back to doing what he was doing before he went to law school, except now he's doing it as a lawyer, which is um, like employment benefits. Uh, and he loves that. And he should have never left it. But, you know, sometimes we get um, drunk off of, you know, certain teachers we take in law school because they're such good teachers. And I think that's what happens here in Atlanta because Mary Radford is an elder law attorney. And oh, yeah. Oh, excellent. And, um, and, and elder law is a new practice area. And people believe that you can become so, you know, financially successful. And because, you know, there's 15,000 baby boomers turning, you know, 65 every day for the next, you know, however long. Um, that it seems almost even like a sexy area of the practice. Well, you need to get into it for the right reasons, and that's because you love seniors. You want to advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves, not because of all those other reasons. You know, even if you fall in love with your professor, you know, <laughs> determine if, if, if you actually are in love with senior citizens. <laughs> and you mentioned Mary Radford. I'm going to have to get her on this. Um, she is, um, uh, for listeners who don't know Mary Radford, uh, she's a currently a law professor at uh, Georgia State. Right, yeah, Georgia State. Mm -hmm. And um, she is sort of the grand dame of trusts in Georgia, uh, going back years. So I've got a tremendous amount of respect for, uh, for Mary. And you mentioned something else I thought was a good piece of advice for newer attorneys, you can make a good living practicing law, and both of us do fine practicing law, but I'll tell you what, I can think of some other things that would be a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and sometimes I think on my most challenging days, I think, why didn't I just go work for someone else, you know? But I know that even on my most challenging days, that I am working for someone else, and it's the senior citizens, <laughs> and that's the only people I want to work for. Um, but yes, there are certainly simpler things out there, and that's something else that I wanted to, you know, point out as far as, you know, like 
this is the trust hacker and, and what I, you know, what you call a hack or a pointer is I think people need to be willing to stand up and stand out and don't just hide behind what's comfortable or what's easy or the path of least resistance. You know, so many elder law attorneys, you know, we are not litigators. And why aren't we litigators? Because this is the happy, comfortable, I love to hug my clients kind of law. And I love that. But we need the litigators too. And thank goodness we have a couple of them out there. But on some level, we're hiding behind the comfort of the ease of the pattern of what we've been able to do. And with the changes in the laws, like the veterans benefits laws, people, you know, the states tightening up on Medicaid eligibility, we've got to stand up and stand out and stop being um, comfortable. Well, and that gets into something I want to ask you about is if you could give a very short piece of advice to an attorney, either right out of law school or an attorney that's been doing something else for a number of years and they're repurposing their practice into elder law, what would that advice be? Well, number one, I would say that everyone should find a mentor and stick with that person uh, for guidance. And it doesn't necessarily have to be how to run your law firm guidance. It doesn't necessarily have to be in elder law, but it needs to be somebody who is successful, who you respect, who is open with, um, with guidance that, you know, honesty. Um, and my mentor since 2003 has been an attorney, um, Bill Hammond out of Kansas City, who is an elder law attorney um, and very successful and certainly guides other lawyers, but he has been my one rock as to my law firm and also when niching into the VA benefits world and when niching now into incorporating financial products into my law firm as an elder care attorney. So number one, I would say find a mentor. And even if you have to pay for that person to be, you know, available to you when you need them, it is worth the money um, because after all, it is their time and their expertise you're, you're, you're relying on. Um, and the second thing is that has worked really well for me and that I'm actually going to be published in a new book on, um, it's not my book, um, but is niche yourself if you can. Um, and for example, in elder law, as you know, Bob, you know, there's the special needs trust niche. Um, I created the veterans benefits niche and now I'm niching further into the financial services niche within a law firm. Elder law itself is a niche. So I would say, you know, find a mentor and do what you love and then see if there's an opportunity, a gap of what's not being offered that you can niche into that you also love. That's great advice. Um, in, in fact, part of it tracked, I think, the best advice I ever got when I was in law school. I was a slightly older law student, and I had a wise contract professor who said, Mason, find a niche, find a very narrow practice area that no one else or very few other people are, are focused on, get the best, you become the best you can in that narrow little niche, you'll do fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the very first law firm I worked for when I was a paralegal was a medical malpractice um, firm. And so they were definitely niched. And that's where I learned that from the beginning. 
Well, what's one thing that elder law, special needs law, I guess any attorneys do that drives you absolutely bonkers, nuts? What drives me bonkers is that people don't want to put in the time to learn something. And they will go off of what they heard or read on a listserv as in as if it's the gospel. Um, they will use software and I'm a big proponent proponent of systematizing a law firm, but they will go off of software and just use it without knowing what the provisions mean. Don't know what even even is in the document itself. Um, other than that they've put in their clients' names. <laughs> um, I, I think that people want to be lawyers but don't want to um, be attorneys. And, you know, to me, a lawyer is someone who graduates from law school. An attorney is someone who actually learns their practice, learns their trade, and becomes an expert at that so that they can truly advocate. And um, that's what irks me more than anything. That's the first time I've heard anyone put it that way, the lawyers versus attorneys sort of uh, dichotomy. That's um, that's really great. I like it. So what do you see going on in the elder law special needs area over the next five, ten years? What do you think the biggest challenges out there are going to be? Number one, I think the biggest challenge is going to be our um, uh, whomever becomes president, <laughs> you know, and whatever um, whatever the political landscape looks like over the next five to ten years. Um, number two is certainly the economy, um, and that drives the federal budget and what is approved and what is not approved, and then certainly that trickles down to the state budgets and what is and what is not approved. Locally in Georgia, I am uh, thankful that just yesterday they approved the budget that includes adding several uh, more caseworkers to the Department of Family and Children's Services. I just hope that they're uh, allocated in the appropriate areas. Um, but Really? Also, that's big stuff coming from the General Assembly in Georgia. Oh, it's huge. It is huge. Um, what... Um, you know, we're already starting to see cuts in, like, for example, the veterans' benefits. Um, and I don't mean cuts financially. What I mean is proposed changes to make it harder for our wartime veterans to qualify for the pension benefits. I think we should expect to see more uh, things like that with regard to Medicaid and other government assistance programs. So from a benefits perspective, I think, just like what we've been seeing over the last 20 years, um, just really tightening up and making it more restrictive and harder for people to qualify. And with regard to that, as far as the landscape for practitioners go, is it's going to continue, I believe, in um, really weeding out those who have the true advocacy desires um, and the the love of who they're advocating for because they will stay in because it's the right thing to do versus those who are here just because it's a job and it's, you know, a paycheck and 
Um, it was trendy at the time. And like the National Organization of Elder Law Attorneys, a few years ago, their membership went down significantly. And, you know, I think that on one behalf, they're thinking, well, it's the economy and things like that. I don't think it's the economy. I think it's the changing of the rules and people don't want to learn their new rules and people aren't really in it for the right reasons. Um, the economy might have had something to do with it, but I don't think it was everything to do with it. Um, and I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of that. As the VA changes, there's going to be fewer lawyers who are going to stay in it, fewer lawyers going to get in it. Um, and I think that elder law may come back to what it originally was, which is the core elements, Medicaid, you know, except it's five-year planning now instead of crisis year planning, crisis planning is going to be guardianship, conservatorship, which I think we're going to see an increase in those areas because of um, the numbers of people getting diagnosed with dementia. And um, I think that um, people like me are going to look for other niche areas that we can incorporate in what we're doing, like the financial services that and that fit the gap of those who do traditional estate planning and those who do crisis planning, we, the financial products are fitting in to help those in the middle that aren't yet ready for care, but yet they want a plan in place and traditional long-term care insurance just isn't the option anymore. It's not the solution anymore. You were mentioning laws changing and practitioners having to get out there and learn it again. Uh, that reminds me a little bit of a book, and certainly you've read it, uh, Who Moved My Cheese? Remember that was big mm-hmm. about 10, 12 years ago? Do you right. also remember when DRA was coming around, Deficit Reduction Act of, what was it, 05? 05. And do you remember all the wailing and gnashing of teeth and everything? Oh, it's going to be the end of elder laws. We know it. And, <laughs> and uh, we're still right. here. And I love hearing things like that um, because I know that for me, change is opportunity. It's opportunity for us to um, advocate more (laughs) and it's opportunity for us because so many people are getting out because there are doomsdayers and um, and I don't know where they go, but I know that it opens up opportunity for those who are here for the right reason. My name's Amanda. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney from Fayetteville, Arkansas. And the Trust Chimp Summit was one of the most helpful feelings I've ever been to. My favorite part was that we didn't just talk about different topics, but we actually had breakout sessions where we worked on different problems so that when we went home, we knew how to apply what we learned. Um, So I highly recommend it. Um, You can check it out yourself at trustchimp.com forward slash summit. Let's talk about VA benefits uh, uh, in a bit more detail. And I know that you talk to various people in the VA, so let me ask you a question. Has anyone figured out yet that the Gulf War wartime period clock is still ticking and it's been going since 1990? Absolutely. Um, I don't know that there's a projected end date in sight either. Um, And so, yes, we've got wartime veterans from 1990 to an unlimited date, um, and that is obviously having an effect on the federal budget, uh, which I think is one of the reasons why the VA is proposing to change some of these other laws, <laughs> making it harder to get benefits. Um, but um, everybody who served in the military since 1990 is considered a wartime veteran. And that's a liability that is accruing that uh, that's going to have a big impact. Uh, it's also going to have a big impact on 
how they administer the rules. So and, let's, and, and, and the health care as well, the health care system itself. What's the latest on the proposed regs for special monthly pension? All right, so... All right, so for the special monthly pension for wartime veterans, um, the proposed rules came out in January of 2015. They were expected to become final by February of this year. Um, that has not happened. The, there was, from my understanding, significant amendments um, to the proposed rules, or I, should, I shouldn't say amendments, I should say modifications to the proposed rules and those modifications were finished um, in mid-November and put on whomever the appropriate person's desk was at that time, and then it has to go through several people's desks. Um, so the latest word is that they are anticipating that the final rules will be effective or at least published by early summer of this year. So I'm expecting June 1st or July 1st. Have you gotten any um, hint as to what kind of modifications they made? Actually, um, very few hints. Uh, one hint was that the drafter of the proposed rules was arguing for a 90-day effective date, meaning that it would not become effective for at least 90 days after it become published, um, and she was not hopeful that that would go through. Um, other than that, I don't know what any of the other proposed, what any of the other modifications to it are, um, and the person who drafted the modifications, the person who drafted the rules is, my understanding, now retired. She left her position. Hmm. And no idea yet when whatever rules come out, uh, whether they're going to be applied prospectively or retroactively or? Well, you know, I think what we as lawyers have on our side is that even though the proposed rules do not have grandfather language in it, meaning that if you gave assets away before the laws changed, that you would be protected, there's no language like that. Um, I think as lawyers, and again, this is where the advocacy is necessary, comes into play is that we have a government accountability office report from May of 2012 that says there are no laws against this and Congress needs to look at this and perhaps put laws against this. Congress, in fact, tried to do that and all their bills died in session. Then the VA comes in and says, well, we'll just change the laws and let's just assume that they can. In their write-up of the changing of the laws, they themselves admit right there in black and white in the Federal Register, there are no laws against this, and that's why we're making these changes to the CFR. And so if then the laws change, and they are then going to penalize people for making the transfers prior to the law changes, then I think that we have not only their own words, but also the Government Accountability Report to say you can't penalize people prior to you changing the actual law. Where this will become gray is for those who made changes prior to the law but did not file an application until after the changes in the law. And so can the VA then say, well, yeah, but you filed your application, which is the triggering event, to then look back three years? And I don't know the answer. Well, one thing I was hoping the proposed regs would do is add some clarity to the treatment of trusts. 
you and I have discussed this in the past, and, and I do a lot of talking out there in public, and when it comes to particularly how is the VA going to treat a grant or trust, or how would the VA treat a an income-only trust, and I end up just having to look at folks and say, I can talk to you about what scant stuff is out there. As you know, the confusing presidential opinions, and there's just not much Mm -hmm. out there. I end up shrugging and saying, you know, and I'm curious to see what you think of this. I think a lot of it, I've I've submitted a couple of income-only trusts. I've really kind of had my hands forced by a probate court where I Mm -hmm. had to, and uh, they got approved. And I'm beginning to think a lot of it depends upon whose desk your file ends up on. Well, and I also believe that it also depends on how you file your claim. And if you submit that trust and you submit the law that supports that trust with the application, then you're going, you should be approved. But if you don't, have a real supportive application, you just throw a trust in there, not only is it going to delay the approval or denial, um, but it more likely would be denied. Well, do you actually submit a, I hate to use the word brief, but a supplemental explanation along with your materials? I don't submit a brief. What we do submit is if there is anything that is out of the ordinary or something that we know that the VA is checking on, such as the tax records for the past two years now, they're going to be looking at that even though they, by law, cannot consider income prior to the date of application. I do know that they're looking at tax records prior to the date of application. So we will submit on our cover letter that goes with our application everything that we're including with the application and an explanation of anything that they would need to know, such as income from prior year, no, the current income from date of application forward will be less due to interest income that is not being received from assets that no longer exist, (laughs) you know, from prior years that you would find on a tax return. You know, so we address that right up front, and we have never had a problem with them coming and saying, hey, why don't you have this income anymore that you had on these tax returns? We don't ever have that problem, but I hear that problem a lot from other lawyers. And so I would do the same with a trust that I am submitting is on the cover letter, I would say, attach, please find the trust, and the supporting law that shows that this is an exempt resource. Okay. Well, I kept hoping that under the proposed regs, they'd add a little bit more clarity. And when I first got the regs back a year or so ago, I ran a a word search on trust. And there is only one subsection in the whole package that even mentions trust under that 3.276, but they say trust is a legal, I'm paraphrasing, trust is a legal arrangement by which a grantor transfers property to a trustee who manages the property according to the terms for the grantor's own benefit or the benefit of someone else. I went, okay, check. Yeah, I'm down for that. Then the next subsection goes, they're talking about transfers, uncompensated value, and they're saying, and in the case of a trust or annuity, Uncompensated value means the amount of monetary value transferred to such trust or annuity. I went, hmm, well, 
if they're saying that it's subject to a transfer penalty if you transfer it to a trust, then it's kind of hard to also maintain that it should be considered an available resource for VA purposes, don't you think? Right, right. So the way I read the the regs is, first of all, when an asset, even before the proposed changes, is it's either available, okay, or it's not available. And now, after the proposed changes, we have the third category, which is there's a penalty due to a transfer. And so the way they wrote the trust language is any transfer to any type of trust is considered a transfer, which would even pull in revocable living trust, which is just crazy because mm-hmm. that's the, an available asset. And so now we're going to have caseworkers who don't know the difference between the types of trust, just like, you know, the director of the pension and management services uh, doesn't know the difference between trust. Basically seeing a trust, a bank statement that has the word trust on it, and they're going to deem a transfer penalty when in fact they should just count that as an asset. And so one-on-one, we are going to have to um, argue these through appeals unless that was one of the modifications that uh, was made due to the overwhelming response that the VA received from public comments. And I can guarantee you that that's one of the responses that was in my personal response to the VA was there is a difference in trusts. Revocable trusts should be considered countable resources, irrevocable trusts subject to penalty. I wish they would just borrow a bunch of the rules from Medicaid and SSI. Well, you know, they did borrow a bunch of the rules, the ones that served them, and then they neglected the others. <laughs> so. I, I don't know how you feel. It's almost, but from my standpoint, I was saying, I don't, I almost, I'm being maybe somewhat hyperbolic here, but I don't care what you do, just do something that gives us some clarity. Right, right, right. And that's where I wish that they would actually consult with practicing lawyers and see us as on the same team versus on the opposite team. And in fact, when I went to go visit with the director of the Pension and Fiduciary Services back in November of 2011, that's, you know, and and met with his entire team, that's exactly what we offered because we knew that they were in the process of modifying, uh, changing the regs. And we offered, you know, can you let us look at them first so that we can at least give some input Oh, yeah, yeah, and then no. <laughs> yeah, your phone hasn't been ringing off the hook, at least from it D.C. It has not. It has not. <laughs> Where do you submit your apps? Um, we send them directly to the Pension Management Center in Philadelphia, which okay. is for our region here in the southeast. Uh, we actually do a fax of the application with a cover letter, and then we mail the original with all supporting documents, uh, return receipt requested. Okay. If we are at the end of the month, uh, well, for our regular apps, that's what we always do. But if we need to file an intent to file a claim um, and get in before the deadline, because I'm so close to the regional office here, we will hand deliver that, get it date stamped, and then we will fax that to the pension management center. Just to get something in the system. Right, right. Okay. What piece of advice could you give attorneys? Uh, let's make it negative. What piece of do not do this advice would you give attorneys when it comes to uh, filing an app? Your favorite finger shaking, don't do this. Don't listen to what veteran service organizations tell you (laughs) as far as what is law and what is not law. 
um, unless they pull it out and show it to you um, because veteran service organizations um, will tell you that there's already penalties for making transfers. They will tell you that they're going to go after and get all this money back from your client. Uh, they will tell you so many things that are not correct, um, like you don't have to consider the income from the spouse. Um, so number one is do not listen to veteran service organizations, especially when you go to file an app and they say you're going to get denied and then you just don't file it. <laughs> you cannot appeal if you do not file. <laughs> um, so that would be number one um, as far as do not do. Well, time flies when you're having fun. And uh, Victoria, my friend, I've kept you about 10 minutes longer than I promised to. But why don't you take a couple of minutes to tell us what you're up to right now, where you would like people to go find you, and uh, I'll be happy to post anything on the show notes on the website. Sure. So, number one, that and one of the things I'm proud of right now is that I was accepted to write a chapter in a book that Jack Kenfeld is the primary author of, and the book um, will be coming out later this year. It's called Road to Success, and my chapter is called Road to Niches. And so um, I would tell everybody to look forward to that. Um, and then the other thing is that by the beginning of next year, I fully anticipate that I will be out on the road again towards the end of, you know, after the laws change, out on the road again, um, really educating lawyers on what these laws mean and what does it mean to them as well as their clients and how can they plan to continue to advocate and preserve their clients' resources, their quality of life so that they can access quality care. Um, and to that end, by next year, I anticipate that we will be filing a lot of appeals and I will have a company that will be assisting lawyers with filing, with drafting those appeals because I know that people are not litigators and I know that they don't want to learn that. And so that's something that um, I'm going to be offering through a business to help people with appeals. Okay. Kind of a consulting sort of thing for attorneys? Yes. yes. You got a name yet? Or are you still playing around with that? I don't yet. I don't yet. Okay. <laughs> I have a business plan, but no name yet. <laughs> and how busy do you keep with Lawyers with Purpose? Um, you know, I I keep real busy with Lawyers with Purpose in that um, we have triannual retreats. Um, in fact, my my senior paralegal here at my law firm works part-time for that business uh, to help their lawyer, you know, their member lawyers um, on the legal technical side um, of stuff and continuing to educate and train. So I'm at every triennial retreat, um, generally at the front of the room, speaking about what's going on with VA benefits. Um, but other than that, you know, I mean, it's a business that is able to run systematically like all businesses should. Okay. I read your blog comes out through there. I mean, you, you post things through the Lawyers with Purpose mail list, and I, yeah. uh, I see that. Who came up with that name? Was it you or Zampano? Um, it was actually Zampano because he had a mastermind group, um, and he was calling his mastermind group Lawyers with Purpose. And then when we formed together, uh, myself, Dave Zampano, and Molly Hall back in the late 2011, we then used that name for the, for the business. Okay. How do people find you if they want to reach out to you? Right. My website is elderlawgeorgia.com. And that's the best way to find me personally through my law firm. Um, and so it's lawyers, I'm sorry, that's elderlawgeorgia.com. With Georgia spelled out, right? 
Georgia is spelled out. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then okay. Lawyers with Purpose is lawyerswithpurpose.com. Mm-hmm. How about email? Yes. So that would be my first name, Victoria at elderlawgeorgia.com. And Georgia, again, is spelled out. Okay. Well, Victoria, this has been great. And I'm really flattered that you've taken time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with me. Well, thank you, Bob. It's always a pleasure catching up with you as well. And I appreciate the opportunity. Victoria shared a lot with us, and there were several excellent takeaways. But for me, one stood out as the hack. Actually, there were two parts to that hack. Did you catch it? Let's see if we agree. So number one, I would say find a mentor. And even if you have to pay for that person to be, you know, available to you when you need them, it is worth the money um, because after all, it is their time and their expertise you're, you're, you're relying on. Um, and the second thing is that has worked really well for me and that I'm actually going to be published in a new book on, um, it's not my book, um, but is niche yourself if you can. As I mentioned, there were two parts. Part one, find a mentor. I never had a mentor, and I wish that I had. Victoria advised getting someone who is successful, who you respect, and what struck me is one you'd be willing to pay. Let's face it, a good mentor is going to be busy and with obligations. Payment certainly reserves you a slot on the calendar. Another bit of advice I might add, don't ask someone in your county or in your same town. Think about it. Who wants to train the person next door? Here's part two. Find a niche. Of course, elder law and special needs law and trusts and tax can be difficult, but if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Within elder and special needs law, or just about any other area of the law, there are sub-sub-specialists, and they all stay pretty busy. All right, let's wind this up. Please, please, if you haven't done so already, go to www.trustchimp.com and sign up for a free membership. There are some downloads available. We push out interesting articles. And best yet, you'll stay in the loop on the latest news. And on that happy note, I'm out of here. Trustchimp.com. 